I'm Leslie Manukian, president of Health Freedom Defense Fund and host of Conversations on Health Freedom, a podcast about our most sacred human right. Hi, everybody. So great to be with you again. Um, Today, I have a really, really fantastic guest I'm so excited about. She's someone that I got to know, gosh, how many years ago was it, Martha? Like, when did we get connected? Five years ago, maybe? I think about five years ago. Yeah. It was very strange. It was before the COVID circus. Um, And we got connected by actually the head of the school where I went and where my son went. And it was this kind of random thing. And we ended up becoming good friends. And We both have similar backgrounds in that Martha used to run the nation's largest REIT. And as you all know, I used to run money. Um, I worked for Goldman Sachs and then I ran money for Alliance Capital and ran the European growth um, portfolio management and research businesses. So we both had this like, you know, um, finance careers in which we were successful. And then we left because we wanted to do better things. And Martha has a very unique story because she left one of the reasons was to help her husband. So let me just say um, that, um, actually, I'll come to this in a second. So Martha Carlin, that's my guest today. She's a citizen scientist and a brilliant one, friends, a brilliant one. She's a systems thinker, a wife of a Parkinson's warrior named John Carlin, and the founder of something a company called the Bio Collective, a microbiome company expanding the reach of science. Since John's diagnosis in 2002, Martha began learning the science of agriculture, nutrition, environment, infectious disease, Parkinson's pathology, and much more. In 2014, when the first research was published showing a connection between the gut bacteria and the two phenotypes of Parkinson's, Martha quit her former career as a business turnaround expert and founded the Bio Collective to accelerate the discovery of the impact of gut health on human health, including Parkinson's. Martha was a speaker at the White House 2016 Microbiome Initiative launch, challenging the scientific community to think in a broader context. Her systems thinking background and experiences led to collaborations across the scientific spectrum from neuroscience to engineering to infectious disease. She is a respected out-of-the-box problem solver in the microbiome field and brings a unique perspective to helping others understand the connections from the soil to the food, to our guts and our brains. In 2021, she launched the functional probiotics brand, BiotiQuest, which I take friends, um, with their groundbreaking product called Sugar Shift, which recently completed a clinical trial in diabetes. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much for having me, Leslie. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I want to say something else that's not on your bio that I think is much more important than anything that's on your bio. And that I think we share in common. And that is that we are both motivated by finding the truth and using that to try and help the world. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think that is a very fair assessment. So, you know, we both could have stayed in what we were doing, but that just wasn't what motivated us. What motivated us was to try and find the truth. And we know that there are so many different competing interests out there in the world that actually control what people believe is the truth, even though we know that it's not. And so I I wanted to say that, one, because I think it's true, and that's what really binds us together is trying to discern truth from all the fiction that's out there. But the other thing is that we don't really know. We don't know the exact nature of life. We don't know. And there's all these debates going on, right, about was there a, a lab leak 
some kind of an escape from a lab? Was there gain of function? Is this a created, a manufactured virus? Is there a virus? Is there something else? Um, is it snake venom? You know, there have been people who put that forward. There are all sorts of, is it 5G? Um, you know, there are many, many different possible explanations for what has been going on in the world in the last four years. And I have an open mind to all of that. And I know that Martha does. And that's why we're here today to talk about some of these possible theories and share those with you and explore them a little bit further. Um, I really want to preface it with that, that this is an exploration of possibilities that we don't know anything for truth or for fact. Like I just read an article today that was really fascinating by a, um, a brilliant uh, epidemiologist named Tracy Beth Hogue. And she did an analysis of um, some of the papers that have determined that most of, in fact, there was a paper recently that said that 17 million deaths had been caused by the COVID vaccine um, worldwide. And yet it doesn't really add up to the data. There are spikes in countries that didn't widely use the shot even before the shots were rolled out. There are spikes at all different strange times, even after rollout um, and during what was supposedly the peak of COVID. It just doesn't make sense. And so what I want to do is have a conversation with Martha that we share with you guys that's all about like, what are some other possibilities? What could be going on here? And Martha, because she's brilliant and because she's done um, um, you know, research in some other potential um, mechanisms or causes of action, has a different perspective. And so let's talk about that, Martha. Like I, I'm going to turn it over to you and then ask you questions. Um, I read the well, paper that you sent me, but yeah, go ahead. Before we start let's in on this paper, conversation, think, let's be very know, clear. One of the things I, I would like to say, you know, coming from a finance and commercial real, real estate background into nine years ago, founding my company and going into the field of science. I thought I was com in, in commercial real estate, you know, everything's about money. It's straight up front. Everybody gets it. You know, you're running the tables. <laughs> and when I came over to the field of science, I thought I was moving into this very lofty and pure. high ideal of pure science. And it didn't take long for me to start seeing a bit of a chink in that armor uh, or the gloss that I had over that. But over these nine years, I have really come to understand the level of money and corruption behind the publication of science and who gets heard and doesn't get heard and who gets money and doesn't get money is actually, I think, much worse than commercial real estate because at least it's all up front there. So I just want to kind of get that out on the table because it's been a, a really eye-opening um, experience for me coming into something that I thought was much, uh, you know, had a much higher moral standard than commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people think, I think this is one of the reasons why it's so hard for people to understand or comprehend a lot of the things that we say. They think that the world of science is all about altruism and what's right and what's true and finding out the truth. And I'm sorry, but I mean, I had a front row seat, you know, um, on Wall Street to talking to the CEOs of the pharmaceutical industry and 
um, you know, they would, I, I've, I've shared the story before, they would tell me that they knew that their drugs were going to injure and kill some people, but that they'd still do billions in sales. I mean, that's pretty brazen um, attitude towards human life and the trade-off with with corporate profit. And, and that's just a sad reality, you know? So it is a shock. And I think it's one of those things like I read, have you seen that there was a study that just came out was a survey that just came out in the last few days. And it looked at what are deemed people who are deemed the elite in this country. And they said that anybody who's, who has makes over $150,000 a year, which I don't think is elite at all. That's only the top 10% of earners. But if you combine that together with people who live in an urban environment with a population density of something like I don't know, 60,000 per square mile. I forget what the number was. I don't remember the number, so don't hold me to that. But the point was you went to an elite school, you make over 150 grand a year and you live in a densely populated area. Do you know that something like 70% of those people think that our meat should be rationed, our gasoline should be rationed, that literally we should be controlled, the flow of information, all these things. They think that the populace should be controlled by them. And that they know what's you know right compared to everybody else. And this is one of the big problems that we face is that much of what's going on is not about what's true scientifically, but about um, some arrogant people who think that they know what's better for other people and that they have the right to force their agenda on them. It's insane, but that's what we're dealing with, you know? So, so let's talk about the reason that we're even having this conversation, Martha. Um, what have you been uncovering? Well, so in my Parkinson's research, I actually had been working for the last several years. So um, I work in the microbiome space. In the microbiome space, we are sequencing fecal samples. So we're sequencing all the microorganisms in there. So for the last nine years, I've been focusing on deep sequencing of microbiome samples. Some of those are beneficial. Some of them are pathogens. So I happen to have a pretty deep knowledge of sequencing technologies, flaws with sequencing technologies, different approaches, the lack of controls, all these kind of different pieces of the puzzle. I have to say this just for our lay people that what Martha is saying is that she analyzes people's poop. <laughs> yes. I'm the poop queen. <laughs> She's the poop queen. And she looks at the at stool samples in order to de determine what different kinds of microbes are in people's stools and then how those might be associated with different kinds of maladies. And so some of these, um, these microbes that she's sequencing, genetically sequencing, she's finding out that some of those are good and some of those are bad. So let's just go from there. So from all of this research, of course, my personal uh, interest that brought me to this is Parkinson's disease. And so we had a pretty large cohort of Parkinson's samples that we've worked with researchers around the world, um, looking at the data and doing research on those samples. And through that process came to understand that there are these little proteins that microbes make, they're called heat shock proteins, and they can be very similar to the gene sequence in human tissue. And so this is something called molecular mimicry where say for an example, uh, mycobacteria tuberculosis would have a protein uh, called cardiolipin 
And our mitochondria has uh, a membrane made of cardiolipin and our body trying to attack the organism can create an antigen that will then go after our own cardiolipin. So it creates these autoimmune type reactions. And so I had been working on this um, Parkinson's hypothesis of molecular mimicry and right before COVID actually was supposed to go to, or kind of right at the early part of COVID was supposed to go to Portugal to present on this hypothesis and the different organisms we had found in Parkinson's and how that mimicry worked. So when all of this hot action started coming out around COVID, I started looking at the spike protein and looking for molecular mimicry. And early on in that process, I found uh, a paper that there were 138 human tissues that had homology, hum, that were homologous, hum, had homology to the spike protein. So there were 138 different human tissues that could potentially get attacked by a, sp a spike protein antigen, which I thought was really interesting. And then um, a one of the Parkinson's immunologist that I know that does research, um, she had published a paper on some of the immune reactions in Parkinson's. And I started reading that just to kind of catch up on her research. And there were all these connections, including um, snake venom toxins that were homolog homologous to these proteins that were involved in Parkinson's. So that so they sort were, of, just yeah. to be clear, so they were homologous to proteins in the human body that are involved in Parkinson's or to proteins that are in some of these microbes? Both. Okay. So you can have, so, I mean, you're, you're talking about a sequence of amino acids, basically. Um, and so you can have a very similar sequence of amino acids. And just for simplicity, let's say it's A, B, C, D. And, and can I just say, sorry, <clears throat> a sequence of amino acids means protein. That's all it means. Amino acids make up proteins. And so, and every single protein has been broken down into letters. Explain this part of it for us. You'll do a better job than I will. The A, B, C, D. Well, I'm using A, B, C, D, but actually the amino acids have specific letters. Oh, okay, so you were just letters. using it as an example. So I'm just using that as a simple example. Perfect. Um, so, you know, if you had A, B, C, D, E, F, G was your uh, sequence, and then you had one that was A, B, C, C, E, F, G, they're very similar. And so what happens with these overlaps you know, you can have a snake venom, a bacterial protein toxin, and a human protein that have overlap. And that's what's called molecular mimicry. And so as all of this controversy has come up from different things, either related to immune autoimmunity or snake venom or um, kind of different pieces of the puzzle that different either scientists or people who are involved in trying to figure out what's going on, sort of latch on to a piece of the puzzle. And I think it's, you know, maybe it's a little more complicated than um, just one thing. Yeah. 
hundred percent. This is what I was trying to say about the death data as well. The all cause mortality data. It's not clear. And some researchers want us to believe that it's crystal clear, this connection between that it was, everything was peachy until the vaccine was introduced and then everything went awry. And that's not hundred percent true. I think there are a lot of people who are having health issues. And I know that in the, um, this may shock people for me to say it, but there are a lot of people, young people, elderly people, healthy people who didn't get the shot, who are struggling with health issues. I know many people. And the question is why? What's causing it? Well, I think there are, I think about this a lot too, because there there are broader changes than just the vaccine or just COVID. So environmentally, um, one of my biggest concerns and the things that I, I've been looking at for 20 years is the use of the herbicide glyphosate. Um, and that. It's an organophosphate. It affects many, many systems, but it really affects the microbes. It affects the microbes in the earth and their ability to put nutrients into our food. It binds up the minerals and so depletes the minerals in our food. Um, it affects the microbes in our gut and destroys the microbes in our gut, which then can also affect our gut lining. So there's this cascade of events. So, you know, what's to say it's not partially a tipping point of, of the cascade of all the things that have been happening to us. It's the vaccine, it's the glyphosate, it's the air pollution, it, it's all of these things. It's not one single thing. And so you're trying to latch on to one one piece of that and say it's all that i don't i don't think that's right or honest you know or honest. maybe some scientists just get so um they're so focused in their ivory tower they don't realize it but yeah there are all these different things i mean did your mother get a um dpt shot when you when she was pregnant did um did you eat a nutrient dense diet because our food is so nutritionally deficient? Did you eat, does your family use all sorts of toxins in the home cleaning products, right? Like all these things play a, play a role. Um, brush your teeth with fluoride. Like so many of these things are a problem. And um, as Chris Shaw, who is in our movie, The Greater Good said in the movie, you know, the idea that we're swimming in a toxic soup certainly is one explanation for what's going on. And I'll say also glyphosate, there are researchers who believe quite clearly, quite strongly that it's connected to autism. And, um, you know, we know that some kids who have not been vaccinated develop autism, but if it's, if autism is actually just a function of a, um, you know, a spectrum of injuries from toxins, then it makes perfect sense because we live in a toxic world. Indeed. So, yeah. And so, in the in the world of toxins, long before COVID, again, as I was looking at the microbiome, I, I mean, my my co-founder Suzanne kind of chuckled at me because I bought this comprehensive book of bacterial protein toxins. It's, I mean, it's literally three inches thick, and I have little stickies sticking out all all over it. But that's really where I learned how these microbial toxins can poke holes in our cell membranes and do all of these. And they have lots of different actions. And 
um, one of the ones of, of big interest to me was was endotoxin. Um, so that's the uh, cell wall of the outer membrane of gram-negative bacteria, which E. coli is a gram-negative bacteria. And there's some research uh, implicating uh, some proteins made by E. coli and Parkinson's. So I was particularly interested in E. coli endotoxin. And as it turns out, through the process of all of these pieces of the puzzle, uh, the um, E. coli is basically used as the manufacturing chassis for a lot of these products. And so the uh, it's used in the manufacture of the, of the mRNA for these vaccines. So, so can I just have you yeah. go back? So gram-negative bacteria, for people who don't know, who, know what that is, gram-negative bacteria is the whole um, group of bacteria that are antibiotic resistant, often multi-antibiotic resistant. And inside of them, you said there's a, a, a membrane or a wall or something that has this toxin that when they break down, that toxin is released into your system. Do I have that right? Well, they're not all antibiotic resistant, but they, that many of them do carry the antibiotic resistance. Okay. And the endotoxin is that cell wall membrane. It's called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. LPS yeah. And there is a test that you can do um, to test for endotoxin. And that's actually something that we tested for when we did a clinical trial in our probiotic and um, tested for the serum lipopolysaccharide to see if we were um, improving the level of serum lipopolysaccharide in the blood, because it's interesting in all these animal models, um, there's a Parkinson's LPS model. So they use LPS to induce Parkinson's symptoms. There is uh, There are diabetes uh, models using LPS to induce diabetes. So, you know, when I look at these models, and look at how science is approaching this stuff. I'm like, okay, if you have spent all this time creating a model to make a mouse have the disease, like, why aren't you asking yourself, how's this happening in the human? Yeah, yeah. So how does it happen in the human? And very importantly, the endotoxins, are they only in gram-negative bacteria? And are they in all gram-negative bacteria? They're not just in E. coli. They're not just an E. coli. It's the cell. It's the cell membrane. It's the lipopolysaccharide cell membrane. So you have gram-positive bacteria, gram-negative bacteria. They have different types of membranes, but it's the lipopolysaccharide. And lipopolysaccharide uh, is also, um, I mean, you can die from lipo from too much lipopolysaccharide. So in the instance of people who um, collapsed right at after they got the shot or died pretty shortly after the shot. Um, there are some scientists who have a hypothesis that that is from um, contamination of the lots with um, endotoxin, essentially. So in the manufacturing process, there are standards that they have to meet that that um, using that manufacturing process, they cannot have any more than you know, X percent of endotoxin in the finished product. And the research that they've been doing shows that there is quite a bit of variability um, mm -hmm. in those lots that, that may have um, been implicated in that. And people need to understand 
this endotoxin, this stuff. So they made batches of mRNA purportedly in vats of E. coli. So (laughs) that's what they say. And there are some people who say that this is ridiculous. It's not possible. And then they supposedly, you know, clean that all up and they just extract the mRNA (laughs) and then they use that to create the shots. But the point is that you're making it in E. coli. E. coli has endotoxins in it and endotoxins actually have a huge impact. They're really damaging to the tissues of the body. They cause tremendous damage to the vascular system, which is all of your blood vessels. And they can cause constriction. They can cause dilation. They can cause um, permeability, all sorts of issues. You tell me if there's anything else. But the point is that once that happens, then it can have a impact on your, like the metabolic um, processes of the body and also on just the physical, um, I'm trying to think of what the word is, like the um, the quality, you know, like it damages the integrity, the physical integrity of the human body. Um, is there anything else? What else do these endotoxins do and why would you not want them in your- Well, injection? I mean, it's interesting because I think- we actually came to having this conversation because um, I was uh, I was looking at some research about the spleen again. Back to you know my constant pursuit of trying to figure out what's going on in Parkinson's, and I found some research from 1958 where uh, they were looking at uh, the spleen, which is where a lot of our immune system, our, our immune cells come from that are, you know, the intelligence of the immune system. And they were working on these animal models. And in order to increase the sensitivity or the toxicity of endotoxin in these mice, they gave them a pertussis vaccine. And I thought, how strange, like the pertussis vaccine actually lowered the ability to deal with endotoxin by 37% in this study. And so I thought, wow, this is crazy because, crazy because again, I'm the poop queen and my husband has had 120 something samples of his stool, whole genome sequenced over the last nine years. And in one of, actually more than one of his samples, my bioinformatics person had sent me a message. This was like five years ago or something. He goes, this is really strange. But he said, I've got a full genome assembly of Bordetella pertussis in John's fecal sample. So he was still carrying this in his fecal sample, either from you know, a vaccine many years ago or, you know, from some other environmental thing, but was it, was it vaccine strain or was it something else? Uh, you know, at the time, because I didn't have, you know, I, I didn't go down that rabbit hole, but I thought, okay. wow, that's, that's pretty strange. And, and my bioinformatics person also thought it was very strange. Yeah. What's also interesting though, is that pertussis is, um, a bacteria, but it releases an endotoxin, it releases a toxin into your system. And that's what causes the problem. It's not the actual bacteria, it's the toxin it releases. So I I don't know if that has any play here, but. Yeah, it's a toxin. Yeah. Just so, like cholera has a toxin, um, 
you know, you get the Shiga toxin from Shigella, you know, they're so, I mean, bacteria are endlessly fascinating and they have amazing toolkits. And, you know, when you say, like people say, oh, it's not possible that they're growing stuff in vats and E. coli, I, you know, from my experience in being in this industry, what I have learned is most of the drugs, many of the small molecule things and people do are actually fermented by bacteria. Most of our antibiotics were, I, I uh, originally identified in a, um, in bacteria, they're produced by bacteria and fungi. Um, so the toolkits that these organisms have are pretty amazing. They can break down just about anything and they can make just about anything. So, so what's the significance of pertussis? Okay. So you said in the study that you read the paper from 1958, that, um, they found that the um, mice that received the pertussis vaccine had a significantly decreased susceptibility to endotoxin. Is there a, um, you know, some significance to it being in John's sample? Well, is it possibly, just weird? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, possibly because part of what we're looking at in Parkinson's is what's going on systemically. And this paper from 1958, it's kind of a mouthful, but I'm just going to read it to the title to you is endotoxin detoxifying capacity of reticuloendothelial system in normal and pertussis treated mice. And so the, the reticuloendothelial system is basically what's recycling um, the blood. So now we've got all these problems with people with their, you know, issues with blood vessels, with blood, with clots, with, so I don't know, is there a connection? And so in the process of reading this study and trying to sort of discern what was important out of it, I started picking up all the references from the paper. And in these references, then were all these connections to studying snake venoms. And I'm like, okay, we're, we went from pertussis to snake venom. And so then I started kind of back triangulating on this stuff. And it's like, when we start to learn about how something in nature works and in small amounts, even like homeopathy, you know, a small amount of something can be used for benefit. And so this study of venoms, not only from snakes, but from spiders and scorpions and fish and all of these um, different toxins have actually been looked at and used in drug delivery and different different types of products for many, many years. So it just was very interesting to me and raised a lot of questions for how long have we known that the pertussis vaccine could actually lower our ability of our system to recycle the blood and help that? Or is this one of those things where an old paper gets forgotten and, and you know, science just forgets about it and they don't realize? Well, uh, science forgets about it or someone buries it. <laughs> you know, right. there was an incredible um, study done on premature infants several decades ago, and I forget what it's called, but I have it in my files. And it um, observed the cardiovascular events in premature infants who were administered vaccinations while they were still in the ICU. 
And I think it was about 30% of the children had to be resuscitated, had low oxygen levels, their heart stopped, something like that. And this happened subsequent to vaccinations, but no one ever followed up on the paper. No one ever followed up on that study, to my knowledge. And I mean, that is just jaw-dropping. 30% of the babies had some kind of a complication post-vaccination, some kind of a cardiovascular complication. So this is very important to know and understand. And let's not also forget that sudden infant death, they tell us, oh, you know, you have to put them on their back. Don't let them sleep on their front. It's because of that. It's because of sleeping on their front that they suffocate themselves. But the fact is that um, a big portion of babies that die from sudden infant death die within a short period after vaccinations. So, you know, is that study in preemies telling us, is that the canary in the cold mine telling us what's going on and what do these endotoxins and something else, I mean, please share with us snake venoms. I was aghast when I was reading the paper that the snake venoms have these same kind of cardiovascular effects, many of them. So they they have, um, they make an enzyme called a phospholipase, basically that it's, it like eats up your membranes, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you start to understand, and the body needs to some extent, we've got to be able to change things around and a lot of, so we have phospholipases ourselves, but those uh, venom toxins will, um, you know, dissolve your blood. I mean, it can dissolve your blood vessels. I mean, that's when you see uh, like somebody who's had one of the very poisonous snakes where the, the, the whole leg or wherever they get bitten turns necrotic. Mm-hmm. Um, the other another sort of strange piece that kind of comes in from this um about five years ago uh one of my advisors was um in a incubator in san francisco and i went out for pitch day to see him give his pitch and see all the other companies um give their pitch and there was a company there by the name of venomics and they were making anti-venom uh for snake venom and of course being somebody who had a startup company who also came from a finance background i'm always thinking like how big is that market and you know i'm I'm looking at this i'm like that's not a big enough market to excite big money like snake so I, i went up to their table and i said you know Bacterial protein toxins are very similar to these venom toxins. I said, you know, have you thought about looking at, you know, bacterial toxins? And they sort of nodded their head and they said, oh, yeah, you know, we're, 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 you know, we've got that later in the pipeline. And I said, it seems like that would be a bigger market for you than snake venom, anti-venom, anti-venom, that it's not that big of a market. So I just found that kind of interesting in the timing of like all of these all of these things that just seem kind of odd. When was that, Martha? I think it was about it was about five or six years ago. Okay, so not very long before the COVID circus. No, so and they're actually people- still in biz- they're still in business. I mean, you can look them up. Okay, just so everybody knows, when she says an incubator, she means an incubator for small companies and businesses, not for for infants or for babies, yeah, or something else. So, Martha. How does all this tie in, if it does in any way, 
to what's been going on in the last four years. And I know this is speculation, so that's fine. But do you think there's a tie-in? Is there, um, and I know there's no one answer to any of this, but do you think there's any connection to anything that's gone on in the last few years? Well, there are certainly, there are, there are certainly a lot of pieces to this puzzle, I will say. And in finding these little bits and pieces, they fit nicely into sections of the puzzle, but is it the full picture? Absolutely not. It raises more questions for me about, you know, what people know or don't know about our immune systems, about what we're doing to our immune systems, um, about, um, you know, the history of the pertussis vaccine. You know, are we all in a compromised immune state? because of what we have done with our vaccine history? I think so. And so then these toxin loads we're getting exposed to, the immune system is just getting overloaded. Yeah. You know, I know so many women here in Idaho where I live who are in their 80s, late 70s, early 80s, late 80s, who are thin, healthy, vital. They still ski, they exercise, they're super active, they do all sorts of things. But they lived in an era before all of the, you know, before a ton of the foods of modern commerce, what what, you know, Weston Price called the foods of modern commerce, and also before all of the injections and drugs. And they're just so different. They don't have they're just they have a vitality that younger people don't. It's and interesting to me because several of the scientists that I spend a lot of time collaborating and bouncing ideas back and forth with are in their 80s. And they are just as energetic as I am. And, um, you know, they're going strong at 87, 88. And it's amazing to me uh, yeah. because I, I do look at people my age or, you know, my husband who got Parkinson's at age 44. Had he gotten any vaccines in the preceding year or two years? Yeah, he. so he had gotten the flu vaccine. So our children were young at the time, and um, he got convinced. to. He stayed at home with our kids, and I traveled. I did not get the vaccines, and he got the flu vaccines because uh, the doctors were saying, well, you're home with the kids. You should, you know, you should get the vaccine. So he did get the flu vaccines. Um right about that two year window before he was diagnosed. There's wow. a lot of pieces of it. like he's got a high toxin load from birth. He grew up in um, he was born in Chicago, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. When the river caught on fire, he worked for uh, he worked on a golf course for four years while he was in high school and college out of school. He went worked in the oil field uh, in sales and servicing. So he was around a lot of hydrocarbons. And so, you know, it's like this cascade, I think, mm -hmm. but then, yeah. you, you know, there's yeah. always kind of that last little, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. Yeah. But there's nothing that is more invasive and more direct than injection, injection of known toxins like mercury, um, aluminum, and all the other junk that's in there, you know, 
So there have been these theories out there that, um, that I don't know if, if it's that supposedly SARS has, um, venom in it or is the shots like what is that there are these theories what is so that I, I think that the i think that that goes back to the molecular mimicry so the the gene sequence similarity of um venoms so and i you know i didn't go back and look at those papers but early on when that first started coming out that was one of the things that i looked at so it's this sequence similarity of those you know, letters of the alphabet and the overlap that there is similarity to these different um, toxins. Interesting. So one thing I want to say is that, you know, there are, there's, there are many debates going on about whether or not there really is a virus, whether it's been proven to do anything or anything like that. But as Martha is one person who has taught me this, and so have several others, it doesn't really matter. And it doesn't really matter, I don't think, because they can actually genetically synthesize, they can synthesize genetic sequences and those sequences can be toxic to us. And so I think that in some ways it's more scary to think that they are <laughs> synthesizing poisons that they release on the public. But my point is that it is possible that they are using sequences that have some kind of endotoxins or something else that mimic something that's close to our tissue that then causes us to either become sick from those or else us to attack our own bodies, you know, so develop some kind of an autoimmune condition. And I think it's important that we just consider that there are a lot of possibilities here. Well, and to not to scare people even more, but in the the molecular mimicry, there are also proteins actually in the food. So there's there's a protein in spinach that in spinach and corn and wheat that is similar to certain human proteins that can cause these autoimmune um, reactions. So, um, and we scientists have been engineering the bacteria since the 1970s. So it's not really something new per se, except in the way that they are delivering it now. So what have they been doing? How have they been engineering bacteria? Well, I mean, E. coli was the the earliest, this, you know, what they found and what is helpful for scientists is E. coli grows really fast. So they can produce a lot more of whatever it is they want to make in E. coli because it grows so rapidly. And so E. coli is really probably the number one engineering chassis of um, genetic engineering. So you basically splice in the genes that you want the E. coli to produce. And I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but, um, it, but, um, and then the E. coli will produce what you want it to produce. So it's like computer code. I mean, that's sort of why, like the argument over, is it a virus? Is it a this? Is it a what? It's like, it's all computer code. We are made of computer code. Those letters of amino acids, those, you know, genes build amino acids, build proteins. It's, but it's all the same letters. So it's all the same letters in humans. It's the same letters in plants. It's the same letters in animals. 
it's computer code. And so when you're engineering a bacteria to make something, you're basically just putting in a piece of code that says, do this. I don't know if that, that was simple enough, but it was, it was, it was fantastic. It was just making me think about how all of these debates about what's really going on um, plays to those who are in charge. It, it plays to their hand because it distracts us away from what's really going on, which is that they're using a public health threat as a pretext to implement a new world order that they're using public health as a guise to, um, you know, force biometric digital IDs on us and things like this. They're using it to get you, to frighten you into sacrificing your rights and submitting to their directives. And it's it's a great cover for all these things, right? Oh, you know, is there a lab leak? Is it gain of function? Is it snake venom? Is it this? Is it that? Well, it, 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 it keeps people in the health freedom movement fighting against each other. It keeps us, I think, most importantly, in the medical paradigm where there's these invisible threats to us, pathogens, and we just never know when they're going to come and jump at us and get us. And and But don't worry, someone's going to provide you a drug or a vaccine for it. And that is where they want us, rather than realizing that um, we actually don't have to be for, as afraid as they want us to be, that we can actually fend off a lot of these things by being super healthy, by taking care of ourselves, by eating a nutrient-dense diet, by eating plenty of saturated um, grass-fed fat, um, you know, by so making sure you're eating adequate A, D, and K, and um, uh, plenty of whole food, vitamin C, getting lots of sun and exercise, right? All these things that we should be doing to keep ourselves well. And um, it keeps us stuck thinking that we're these helpless little beings and there's all this out there in the world is a scary place and that's just not the case. And so um, I think it's important for us to have these conversations because it actually helps us to realize that the narrative that's being put out there and orchestrated, um, you know, manufactured in a very coordinated way is not necessarily the answer. It's not necessarily the truth and you don't have to buy into it. Um, so, I mean, I think it's really important that we have these conversations about this and that we contemplate that there may be other possibilities. Like, I don't know if you were involved in this stuff when Zika was a big thing. Have you not so much that, but uh, Ebola, uh, when Ebola was a big thing, I was actually not involved in this, but I was involved in, in a commercial real estate operation that had a bunch of hospital workers. So <laughs> just, you know, it was a kind of an interesting yeah. um, early indoctrination to the fear paradigm. Yeah. Well, I think what happens very often, so Zika is a great example. What happens is we are poisoned by something that corporations or governments do. In the case of Zika, Zika is an endemic virus, supposedly. It's been around for 70 some years. Everybody in Colombia and other countries in South America will test positive for it. It was not associated with microcephaly, which is shrunken brain syndrome, but it was a great cover after two things happened in Brazil and those countries nearby. They sprayed the waterways with glyphosate. 
um, about a year before all of these babies with microcephaly appeared. And they also started giving the old whole cell pertussis vaccine, the DPT shot to those same mothers back then before there was this huge outbreak of all those. But the thing is, you know, they're never going to tell you what's really happening. It's not the vaccine. It's not the glyphosate. It's a bug. It's- and and so they run with that in order to, you know, run cover for what's really happening, which is that somebody somewhere has poisoned people and sickened them. Do you know the book, The Moth and the Iron Lung about polio? I don't know if I've ever read that. It's um, it's it's basically about the gypsy moth and uh, a, an insecticide called Paris Green that gets sprayed. Um, and then th- there's actually a group of, of uh, practitioners in Israel that I've been working with, with my probiotic, actually, um, who are they're pretty convinced that it is a basically poisoning. Um, it's not quote a virus uh, so this is group, people in israel they're yeah they, and they are um they are focusing on uh detoxification and you know i'm not here to plug a product but we actually because of my focus on glyphosate uh one of the things we did early on was looked for um probiotic species that were resistant to glyphosate because most of the bifidobacteria and the lactobacillus in our gut that are very important for our health are actually killed by glyphosate. And we found a strain of lactobacillus plantarum that we fermented from um, wild elderberries, basically. And um, it was resistant to glyphosate and it could break glyphosate down without producing something called the AMPA that's even more toxic. And so uh, we use that in all of our products because it helps detoxify glyphosate. It also helps with heavy metals. And then we went on to look at that approach. And we have another company called um, Ancient Organics Bioscience, where we're making soil-based mixed organisms that can clean up glyphosate and increase the yield I actually was just talking to Raul before I got on here and um, they just, they've done a study in wine in the grapes. They can actually see the reduction in glyphosate inside the grape uh, reduction of the uh, glyphosate on the cotton fields with a 25% increase in yield. So I'm optimistic, even in spite of all this crazy last four years that, you know, we can come out of this, the other side because we do have creative minds who are looking at how can we solve this toxin load and mm. help us get out the other side and you know be focused on healthy food like Weston Price ta- teaches us, um, you know our immunity and taking care of ourselves and not loading ourselves up with all these toxins and drugs and what have you. Yeah, listen, we already live in a toxic world. Um, that's just unfortunate fact of life. But the thing is we can try and mitigate some of that by leading the healthiest life possible. So is that plantarum, that bifidum in, is it in sugar shift? It is in sugar shift. Yeah. Okay. So it's called, uh, TBC 36 is what is the name of it. Lactobacillus plantarum. Okay. So I have to tell you, I have a colleague who's also in Israel and 
he said that he and a group of other people were walking down the street or they were on the street somewhere and they were poisoned. And he developed all of the supposed symptoms of COVID. And he is adamant that he and others, and he's been very, very sick ever since, almost died, that they were actually poisoned, that something was sprayed on them. Is that the same with your friends? Uh, you know, I don't there because it's more their patient load. So, I, you know, I haven't asked. I'll have to ask. Um, I mean, they, there's a lot of herbicides and pesticides used in the agriculture. Well, this these is were a, people who were protesting, Martha. These were people who were specifically on the street protesting okay. measures in Israel and someone sprayed them with something and they all got very sick. And well, so the, the other one was somebody who was working. So they've had some trouble with workers in the because a lot of their labor was in coming in from other countries and with all the shutdown they they've had to ask for volunteers to actually come work at the farms and i did talk to another woman who um had to stop volunteering because the herbicide the contact with the herbicides had made her so sick so i think it that what's interesting about that is we're also removed from our food by growing it at a grocery store. So somebody who actually did go volunteer at a farm and see how things are grown and come in contact with these herbicides starts to understand, oh, this really isn't a very good practice. It's terrible. Yeah. And it may be herbicides. It may be other stuff. We just don't know, you know? Well, I, you know, uh, well, we probably don't want to go down the, what are they spraying in the skies? Yeah. Route, but, but I was um, going to say, <laughs> go ahead you know to me could, you know, all these be, different sorry go ahead i mean it it could be a, a herbicide insecticide whatever it could be something else too right i mean it could be ddt for all we know who knows what they're spraying we don't well, know i think I, I may have mentioned to you uh in one of my health groups uh, uh there's a farmer that they've been trying to help because his grandson's been sick and he's been sick and several of the family members have been sick and um, they actually had their soil tested and it had uh, came back with DDT. And that I didn't realize has a 200 year half-life. So um, even though, you know, the American Eagle has come back, uh, you know, maybe it's, there's still enough in the soil coming up into the plant material that do you think, did they think that it was recent DDT or is it historic? They don't know. They, they were, um, they were trying to, to find that out, but I mean, they know they didn't spray any DTT, yeah, DDT. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I think you'd said it had been organic for seven years, right? Right. It's just shocking. Yeah. Um, so I think we, um, should wrap it up, Martha, but I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And I really want everyone to, to take away the message that what is so important in this day and age is discernment. Um, if something doesn't add up or seem right to you, dig deeper, ask questions, you know, people who are super sensational or really promoting a lot <laughs> stand to gain financially, they may have vested interests. And so I think it's really incumbent upon each and every one of us to be as discerning as we possibly can at this time um, about all the information that we consume and from whom we take it. Um, and I really appreciate you, Martha, because you're super open-minded 
very, very curious and committed to just trying to find out the truth wherever it may take you. And, um, and that's something that I just really applaud and appreciate in you. And I appreciate you just sharing some of this kind of research that you've, you've done. I know it's not conclusive, but it's very, very interesting to share and discuss. So thanks so well, much I, for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And, and I do, I, I do believe and agree that it is so important for people to look for themselves and really kind of take a step back from all that noise they're getting and um, discern inside themselves what the truth is. Amen. Thanks for joining me today, Martha. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Conversations on Health Freedom. Please follow us at healthfreedomdefense.org where you can become a member, subscribe to our newsletter, donate to our cause, and follow us on social media.